you haven't already, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. Last week, we examined the first portion of this text, and in that sermon, we observed an elderly, childless couple who had been visited by an angel of the Lord promising them a child. This child, John, would be a fulfillment not only of the word of Gabriel to this young couple, but also of the prophecy recorded in Malachi 4-5, where God would send Elijah to turn many people to God. So we've seen God acting decisively on behalf of his people. He acts in faithfulness. In this sermon, we'll observe that same faithfulness once again. But more than that, we'll observe how God draws his people to participate in his acts of redemption. This is something that we don't probably think about as often as we should. But God acts on behalf of his people And God draws his people into that redemptive work. He doesn't act in isolation from or indifference to his people. Instead, he brings them into his redemptive activity. We'll see this clearly in Mary. And we'll see in her example a calling on our own lives. So what I want to do is just walk through each scene of this story, drawing out both God's faithfulness and the invitation for us to participate in it. After the angel visits Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we're left with this pregnant pause as Elizabeth comments that the Lord has taken away her disgrace, the the scene shifts to a different location, to a very humble setting. In the last section, Gabriel appeared in the heart of the religious world, in the center of Judaism, in the sanctuary of the temple, in this grand and exalted place. Well, now we change the scene to this backwater town, this diminutive town, hardly remarkable, not very well known. And when it is remarked upon in the Bible, it's spoken about quite negatively. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Sense the shift here from glory to humility, from a priest at the climactic act of his service, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to a a young, unknown girl in an unknown town with a bad reputation. One commentator emphasizes the shift in this way. The scene moves from sacred temple space in Judea to far-flung Nowheresville in Galilee. I grew up in a small town called Watertown. It's like Nowheresville. When I think of this, I think of Watertown. Nobody knows of Watertown, Wisconsin, and if you do, it's because you know that it, like, has the most bars per capita in Wisconsin. You, you know, like, it's like a drug town-ish between Madison and Milwaukee. No, it, only for bad things. That's Nazareth, but that's where the scene shifts. And the reason this is so remarkable is that Luke has purp- purposely uh, contrasted these settings in order to show a progression in the story, not a regression. You might think moving from the heart of the religious center to a backwater nowheresville, this story is taking a pause or it's going somewhere less remarkable. When in fact, the story becomes more remarkable in every way. And I'll try to draw some of that out. But I just want you to notice the humble setting for everything that's going to take place. It's in a backwater unknown town. There's this young girl whose name was Mary, 
who is approached by the angel Gabriel. Now, this um, translation we're using says uh, that Gabriel came to a virgin, engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Um, If I could spend a lot of time talking about this, I would make a really strong argument for why we should translate virgin there as young woman, because our translation is giving away a key element of the story before we're ready for it. The, The thing that you're supposed to focus on in that line is that Mary is betrothed to a guy named Joseph from the house and lineage of David. So the key point in this line is that Mary is going to marry a guy who's connected to Israel's greatest king, David. That's the significant portion of this line. So keep that in your mind. Israel's greatest king has an offspring in an unknown and lowly and unremarkable town, and this unremarkable girl is engaged to this guy. Now, the um, term engagement here or betrothal probably draws to mind our experience of engagement, where you date somebody for a while that you kind of like, and then you decide you want to marry them, so you propose and you become engaged. And if something bad happens, you can break off the engagement, and it's a big deal, but you just take care of all of this privately. Well, in the ancient world at this time, betrothal or engagement was far more serious. Um, If you became betrothed or engaged to somebody, you were legally married to them, and the only way out of it was through divorce. Now, what might seem most bizarre to us is that though you're legally married, you don't live with that individual yet, you don't sleep with them, you aren't intimate with them, uh, you just are legally married, you're not physically married. But it's still a really, really big deal. There's no way out of this other than divorce. So in this picture... We have a young, unknown couple in an unknown town who are virtually married, but not yet living together according to the custom of their day. Now, without pressing this, these details too far, we should take note of this humble circumstance. The announcement, this great announcement, comes in a little-known town. It comes in the lowliest of places. Often, When we expect God to work, we look for him to do so in all of the fitting places, in the temples, in in the respectable locations, in the high and exalted places. But instead, Jesus, who is himself gentle and lowly, often works in lowly and unremarkable situations, and even in non-explicitly religious contexts. God is working in the everyday not just when you come to church in this room. God is at work in humble circumstances. Now, when we're reading this story, if, we're, if we were reading it for the first time and taking all of the details into mind, I think that we would become like that little boy in The Princess Bride who keeps in, interrupting his grandfather, who's reading him this story, to tell him, you've got the details wrong. We want to say, You've got the details wrong, Luke. This announcement of Jesus is supposed to come in the temple. You switched him around. But that's not the case because God delights in exalting the lowly and working out his redemptive plan in the most humble of situations. In response, we ought to calibrate our own expectations of God's redemptive work to match this picture, not to meet our own expectations. 
whether that's a grand redemptive work like Jesus's birth, or perhaps the smaller inbreakings of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Some of us might be convinced that God is not working in our lives because nothing grand and glorious has ever happened to us. We've never had that mountaintop religious experience. I was talking to a gentleman a couple of months ago. He was telling me that he had read about Paul uh, who had this transcendent vision up to the third heaven. And he was telling me that he prays for this every day. And I just wanted to remark to that man, you are praying for the wrong thing. Like that, that is the like, least likely and uh, least common way that God works. Instead, God works in our spiritual development and growth in lowly and unassuming ways. So we ought to adjust our expectations. So do you expect God to show up in glitzy and glamorous ways? Do you, do you demand that God works to show himself faithful in particular ways? As a church, are we demanding for God to show his faithfulness through explosions in church membership or conversions or baptism or numbers of dollars in the offering plate or in our case, the offering box? Or are we willing for God to do his slow and patient work in unremarkable ways? Do we demand that God um, brings us power and popularity as expressions of his work? Or are we content to live quiet and humble lives, experiencing the grace of God in the everyday? Good exercise for all of us would be to sit down and to list the ways that God shows his kindness and faithfulness to us in unremarkable ways instead of only bringing to testimony time the great and shocking, surprising ways that God works. So I would encourage you, particularly those of you who are in Christian families, as you gather with your relatives over the Christmas holiday, don't work to try to point out the most um, glamorous way or the most glamorous thing that God has done for you. Instead, pursue a consistent testimony of his faithfulness in the everyday aspects of your life, in the daily bread, in the scriptures, in the answer of prayer, in that conversation with a fellow church member, in this slow progressive change to where you love the things of the world less and the things of God more. Find God in the everyday. He delights to show himself there. But in this humble setting, there's a surprising announcement. And, and those of us familiar with this story, you know, in, in literature, we talk about a, a willing suspension of disbelief where we accept, we like accept that something that couldn't happen happened for the sake of the story. We, we need to have a willing um, suspension of knowledge. We need to set aside what we know is going to come in this declaration so we can try to hear it as if for the first time to try to hear this as Mary heard it. That, that's what we want to do here. So in this out-of-the-way scene, Gabriel comes to Mary, and he greets her and declares to her that the favor of the Lord is with her. Mary responds with deep consternation. She was very troubled by this statement. I don't quite know why that is. She does not show the same kind of fear that Zechariah feels shows. Instead, she's troubled that the Lord's favor is with her. I don't know what to make of that, 
So I would invite you, if you do, talk to me after the service because I have read many, many people writing about this text and no one comments on this. So if you've reflected on this at length, I'd I'd be interested in, in knowing what you think. But the Lord's favor is with her and she is deeply troubled. So she she um, trembles, whatever response, the angel picks up on it, and he tells her not to be afraid, reiterating that the favor of God is with her. Perhaps as she's hearing this, she thinks about other individuals who were greeted with the favor of the Lord, who were then called upon to do something that they did not want to do. Maybe in her mind is Gideon, who um, is approached by an angel of the Lord and called to do something that he just does not want to do in any way. Maybe she senses that the Lord is about to call her to do something that she doesn't want to do. We don't know, but the angel reassures her that the favor of the Lord is with her. He invites her to listen, and this is the way God would express his favor to her. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, which is just another way of saying Israel, forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So in Gabriel's revelation to Zechariah, John would be a prophet of the Lord. He would prepare the way for the Lord. Now Gabriel is announcing that the Lord himself would be seated on the throne through this special birth through Mary. So with these promises, Gabriel reveals to Mary that she has been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. I I don't know that we can even emotionally relate to how remarkable this is. Generation after generation and after generation of Israelite women who knew about the promise of the Messiah. Generations of women who knew that the seed of the woman would come to strike the head of the serpent. Generations of women who knew that David would have a greater son who would become the king of Israel knew these promises and probably the most observant of them hoped in some way that they would be used to fulfill them. And now you have an unknown woman who's about to marry a guy of the house of David who has just learned that she will be the one through whom the promise will come. But in response, she points to one obvious obstacle. She is still a virgin. Even though she's betrothed, she's not yet married. And she's understanding Gabriel to say, you need to carry out this action immediately. Um, Just like most other angels who tell someone to do something, they expect immediate compliance. Mary here is understanding the angel to say, you should comply with my instructions immediately. So you have to get in Mary's head a little bit. If she's evaluating this, she's saying, okay, um, one plus one equals two, okay? I'm, I am me, and I'm married to someone of the household of David, who, and, and Jesus, or this angel just said that a son of David would take David's throne, so I need to be with this guy, Joseph, but he wants me to do this right away, but there's no way that I can speed up a betrothal. This is an American engagement where you can say, you know what, um, We're just walking down to the courthouse. We're getting this taken care of. She's wondering, am I being called upon to violate the circumstances of this betrothal to bring about the instruction of the angel? 
am I being called upon to do something that violates what I would perceive to be faithfulness in order to accomplish God's plan? Now, I think there are two ways that I can prove that she was thinking this in as much as we can. There are situations when God would speak to his prophets in the Old Testament and call them to do things that would otherwise be considered non-kosher, not maintaining covenant faithfulness. Whether it's marrying a prostitute or making a meal um, using human dung as uh, the fire starter or whatever the case may be, often prophets are called upon to do something that breaks the mold of covenant faithfulness. Even when we read the account from Joseph's perspective of this incident in Matthew, uh, Matthew writes, even though Joseph was a righteous man, he didn't want to divorce his wife. A righteous person in that day would have divorced their betrothed if they were found to be pregnant prior to the consummation of marriage. Mary is wrestling what it means to be faithful to God in her setting with this added revelation and calling on her life. So when she asks, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man, she is not asking out of a lack of faith. She's asking because she doesn't understand the logistics of what she ought to do. So unlike Zechariah who asked, how can I know that this will happen? She asks, essentially, how should I go about this? She's asking building on faith and not disbelief. And that's why when she receives a sign, it will be the opposite of Zechariah's. His was a punitive sign. You faltered in your faith, so here's the judgment. You will be silent. While Mary's asking not out of a faltering of faith, but out of a willingness to obey and not being sure how. I think that even here, she provides a good example for us. Often, when we see the commands of Scripture, when we see Christ calling on us, we're not sure what that should look like in the settings that we're in, even though we're willing to obey. We, we just don't understand how we're supposed to carry it out. And Mary shows that the right response is not to ignore our calling or to go about it thoughtlessly, or to ponder over it and eventually forget about it, but instead to investigate through an appeal to the Lord how it is that we can be faithful. I think that's just a side note, but she's definitely contrasted with Zechariah here. So then the angel shows her the way forward. And this is just so surprising. It's so remarkable. It's so unexpected. He says that, This child would come about not through her marriage to Joseph, but instead in this way. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. He'll he'll be kind of a son of Joseph. He'll be more fundamentally a son of God. In these words... Gabriel speaks of the Trinity. We have the Holy Spirit, the Most High, and the Son of God. And he speaks of the Incarnation. He speaks of these two great mysteries to a young girl in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't miss a beat in this announcement. He doesn't pause to explain the mystery of the Trinity or the Incarnation. 
but he goes on to give her a sign. He calls her to consider her cousin in some translations. We don't know if she's their cousins or not. But he calls her to consider her uh, relative, Elizabeth, as a sign that God would do this. Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age, and she's already six months into this pregnancy, even though she's been called childless in her old age. No one expected this to happen. If, if God could work in this surprising way, you can believe that God will work in an even more remarkable way. And once again, a heightening of the situation is brought about in this humble circumstance, not something less than. It's remarkable that an old woman who was infertile her whole life had a child. It's even more remarkable that this young virgin will conceive and have a child. God is at work in a remarkable but mysterious way. How is it that we can understand this? This one line tells us everything we need to know in verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. In all of the mystery that is God's redemptive working in the world, in all that we can't understand, in all that we can't know for certain, we can know this. Nothing is impossible with God. We can lean into the mystery of God's working because of our belief in God's power and ability to do what he says. Mary then responds with remarkable faith. And this remarkable faith will bring about a prophetic word of blessing later on. But she simply replies, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Without hesitation, with great humility, Mary entrusts herself to God. She acts by faith. She doesn't require further explanation. She, she doesn't require further proof. She doesn't dictate any of the terms. She gives herself over to the Lord as his servant, as his handmaid. She leans into the mystery. Mary provides an example for all of us of what it is to respond with the obedience of faith, to lean into the mystery of God's calling and to say, I am the Lord's servant. It's hard for us to appreciate the cost that Mary took on in this humble reception of God's calling in her life. But if we can try to read this from her perspective a little bit, we need to remember that she's a young, vulnerable girl whose entire future is now threatened. Her pregnancy threatens to end her betrothal, to cut her off from her family, to stain her reputation for the rest of her life. And added to these hardships would be the relational and social ostracization that would lead to financial hardship, inability to care for herself and her family. And even with this impending hardship, she responds without hesitation. She becomes the Lord's servant regardless of what it will cost her. She's an example for every one of us to respond to God's calling regardless of what it costs us, regardless of what it jeopardizes. For every single one of us, when God calls us to himself, it at a minimum jeopardizes having what people in America would call a normal life. In all of the small ways, like a schedule where you show up to church on Sunday and a hundred other times as you're serving the Lord, 
to bigger ways, particularly those who pursue some aspect of vocational ministry, but for every person who answers God's call, it means that you won't have a normal life. Mary shows us what that looks like in the extreme as she answers an extreme call. But she provides a model of giving oneself fully to God's call on our lives, regardless of the outcome for ourselves. More than that, she shows us um, in a typological way or in a pictorial way the calling that every Christian takes on, which is to bear Christ to the world. Mary was called to physically bear Christ to the world through childbearing, but Mary becomes a picture of the church in Revelation in particular, in Revelation 12, as all of Christ's followers are called to bear Christ to the world through their witness to the lamb that was slain. In fact, this is how the dragon will be defeated. This is what Paul says in Romans 16, 20. Uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Um, that's the picture in Revelation 12 as the witnesses, the faithful witnesses, the offspring of the woman in Revelation 12, defeat the dragon through their witness and by the blood of the Lamb. Here is an example for every one of us to respond with the obedience of faith and to bear Christ to the world, participating in his defeat of Satan. That picture is worth um, investigating all the more. And unfortunately, we only have four weeks to examine this whole Luke story, which, as I've mentioned, is the longest one. So I must move forward. But I want to call you, when you reflect on Mary, to reflect on her properly, as I already referenced in the opening to our service. We do not worship her or revere her because of anything in and of herself. We learn from this anonymous person who shouted out to Jesus, blessed is the womb who bore you in the breasts who nursed you. And Jesus replied, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. And in Mary, we see a supreme example of someone who heard the word of God and did it. So every one of us should respond in the same way, to hear the word of God, whatever it is, and to do it. Well, following this surprising announcement, there's a prophetic declaration in verses 39 through 45 as Mary hurries to Nazareth to meet her relative um, Elizabeth. This journey, probably taken on foot, probably would have taken Mary three to four days. Once again, she becomes vulnerable and exposed to hardship as she, in faith, responds to the word of the angel. She goes immediately to Elizabeth. It seems without talking to her fiancé, you know, his perspective, if you read in Matthew, it was discovered that she was pregnant, you know, multiple months along. Well, she acts in faith and goes right away to Elizabeth. And when she comes to Elizabeth and greets her, uh, this baby, John, leaps inside of Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's the prophetic declaration. It's a declaration of blessing on Mary. Blessed are you among women, and your child would be blessed. What's more, Elizabeth recognizes that Mary is the mother of her Lord. Elizabeth is the first to equate Jesus' identity with God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
Elizabeth declares that Jesus, this baby, shares in the identity of the God of Israel. This is unthinkable. It's unimaginable. It's the truth of the incarnation, that God becomes man. We have to hurry quickly from this brief visit, but I want to point out that Elizabeth, who herself was blessed in a unique way by God, recognized God's blessing in Mary. And through her prophetic interpretation, we know what's going on here. We know that from the very beginning, God was working to come in the flesh so that not only would he be blessed, but so that he would bless us as well. So there's this brief prophetic declaration, and it brings about a hymn of praise or this invitation um, to praise, this invitatory song. It invites us into it. Now, um, I have to confess that whether it's been the Bible or any other piece of literature, as soon as I've come across poems embedded in a story, I just skip over the poem because they rarely add anything to the story. They don't drive the story further. They don't introduce new plot points. It's like it just recaps what happens, and poetry is boring, or so I used to think. Um, And maybe you're like me. Maybe you come across texts like this that are beautifully offset as a poem here, and you think, oh, this is one of those parts that I can skip. You know, whether it's in the Bible or if you're reading The Hobbit and, and um, the dwarves or Bilbo is, you know, breaking into song, you can skip that part. It doesn't add anything. Well, that's one way of looking at it, and it's wrong. Um, it's not the right way to read the Bible or literature. I'm going to have to ask that you just put up with my literary teaching for a moment here. But it is true that the more we learn to read literature, the better readers of the Bible will be. So, I think it's worth taking a few minutes to talk about how poetry works in narrative. And and sometimes when you come to a sermon, you're looking for the, what's the transformational truth that I can apply to my life? Well, sometimes that's there. But sometimes the best application from a sermon is that you learn how to read the Bible better. And I hope that's what this section of the sermon is going to do for you. After many years of reading literature in the Bible, I can evaluate my previous approach a little bit more thoughtfully. I was partly right in that poems in stories rarely add new plot lines. Rarely do they advance the story, but that doesn't mean that they're unimportant. It only means that they're unimportant if you're reading the story in a particular way, as a detached observer who just wants to know the facts, instead of as someone who enters into the story. And in fact, poems and songs that are embedded in stories are the portals or the door that invites you to enter into the story, to empathize with the individuals who are speaking, and actually to adopt that story to reinterpret your life and to change the way that you live out your story. So poetry and narrative is the doorway that we walk through to become part of the story and then to leave transformed by the story. So when the poetry or song is inserted into the narrative, it it draws us in. That's the function of a poem or a story or or a song in a narrative. 
That This is why the Christian church for 2,000 years has sung the Psalms because it draws us into the story of what God has done for humanity. The Psalms become Jesus' song, and then they become our song. That's why the Psalter is so important. Um, But there's more proof that stories work this way than that. You can draw on your own experience um, to see what I'm saying. Um, There's a reason that we have musicals, and in the musical, people memorize not the lines that the characters say, but the lines that the characters sing. This is why after that musical Hamilton was released, everyone knew the songs of Hamilton because it drew us into the story and then allowed us to reinterpret our experiences of our own lives in light of that story. This is why, for those of you with children, when your children are watching a Disney movie, you'll hear them start to sing the songs that the characters sing. They're literally showstoppers that allow you to participate in the story. They invite us in. All of this to say, when we get to Mary's song here, it's not just Mary's song, it's also our song. It's our invitation to enter into the story and become part of it. That's why we sang already this morning, and we'll re-sing that song again, um, a song that draws on these lines because it becomes our song through the function of poetry embedded in narrative. All right, that's my English literature lesson break for us. We now enter into the story, not as detached observers, but as participants, um, drawing on the experiences of Mary here. I want to uh, draw out at least four takeaways as we enter into the song and the story. Uh, I, I, again, wish that we could spend forever long in this text, because there's a lot more that we should think about, but we have to grab onto at least these four things once we enter into the story. First, this song shows us that the entire story of God's redemption of humanity is grounded in the mercy of God. That's what Mary points out in verse 50, His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. And then again, in 54, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. We talk about how things get lost in translation. In the Old Testament text that Mary is drawing on, the way that we translate the Hebrew of those texts is we talk about God's covenant faithfulness or his steadfast love. All of God's redemptive work is because of his covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. It's his love and mercy that brings about his actions not only in the incarnation, but in the rest of the life of Christ and in his drawing us into it. All of our salvation is grounded in the mercy of God. A mercy not just for other people, a mercy not just for Abraham, a mercy not just for Israel, but a mercy for all people as Christ comes to become a light to the Gentiles as well. Second, we can proclaim that all generations will call us blessed because the reason for the blessing is reception and obedience to the word of God. Here, Mary rightly says that from now on, all generations will call her blessed. But as we 
hear the word of God and obey it, it is also true that we join the company of the blessed. We enter into the redemptive story by hearing and obeying the word of the Lord, not uniquely in the way that Mary did through a virgin conception, but instead through participating in the life and death and resurrection of Christ as we repent and turn to him in faith. In so doing, we will be counted among the blessed. It's worth reflecting on what our conceptions of blessing is. Some of us might think of being blessed as having everything we want in the world. But what we learn here is that to be truly blessed is to hear the word of God and do it because in doing the word of God, we become a different kind of person. We become more like Christ, the Holy One, the child who is blessed. By doing the word of God, we tie into the blessings offered to us in Jesus Christ. Mary uniquely leaves a legacy of blessing in this text, and it's good for us to consider the kind of legacy that each of us leave. As we live out our lives as Christians and as a church, when we talk about the blessing that we want all future generations to talk about with regard to our lives, what is it? Is the blessing we want future generations of Resurrection Church members to grab onto the fact that we got into a new building or the fact that um, we saw certain stats met in our church's life? Or is the blessing that we want future generations of Resurrection Church members to grab onto to be that the members here have always heard the word of God and done it, regardless of what the calling was? We want to be the kind of people who leave a legacy of blessing that's tied up with doing the word of God and participating in the redemptive act of Christ. Third, this song draws out the theme of reversal that's in every major section of scripture and attendant to every major act in redemptive history. When you read this poem, Uh, One scholar describes it in this way. He says that Mary responds to the blessing of the incarnation with a fiery political theology. She's, She's talking about how Jesus, the Davidic king, enters into the world and turns everything upside down, as Luke writes in Acts, or better, Jesus as king turns everything right side up. Jesus, in his kingship, reverses everything to set it as it should be. And only those who identify with Christ and start to see the world in Jesus' way will say that the world has been turned right side up. Everyone else will say the world has been turned upside down. We need to see the world in Christ's way. We need to look at the world through the lens of what Christ is doing. And what Christ does is he brings about a great reversal so that the lowly are raised up, so that the proud and those resistant to God are cast down, so that the hungry who have gone without are filled, so that the rich who have always relied on themselves will be turned away if they fail to rely on Christ. But those who are helpless will find help in God through Christ alone. In Christ, a great reversal is being brought about that's depicted and preached about in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus pronounces another blessing on those who are lowly and meek and humble and poor and respondent to God. 
This challenges us because we are programmed to live in an upside-down world and be okay with it. We are programmed to value all of the wrong things and to resist the Christ who brings about the great reversal. We attach our hearts to wealth. We attach our ambitions to power. We love the strong. We want to be in the in crowd. We want to belong to the popular. But in Mary's hymn of response to the incarnation of Christ, she shows us that God is turning everything upside down in him. So we don't give our hearts to the things of the world, but instead we give our hearts to Christ and live in a way that mirrors his own action. So this song draws us into a story of reversal. So I would challenge you, particularly as you prepare to gather with your families over Christmas, and you start to see all the successes of everybody else, and you start to um, boast about your own successes. And as you feel that temptation, either to be discouraged because you aren't as successful as everyone else, or to boast in how successful you are, remember that God brings about a great reversal in Christ, and that this life is not about making something of ourselves, but instead it's about making much of Christ, even if, like Mary and Joseph, it costs us a normal, successful life. Fourth, this song finds its initial enactment in Jesus' ministry, and it will eventually come fully true at Christ's return. So when you hear what Mary is saying, Jesus does all of these things, doesn't he? He feeds the hungry. He rejects the rich. He raises up the lowly. He sends away the proud. Jesus begins the initial fulfillment of this prophetic-like psalm, but he hasn't finished it. There's a pause. There's a note of incompleteness. It's like there's an intermission in a great musical, and, and the second half hasn't happened yet. We understand that there are some theologians who get it wrong and think that this is all the gospel is, so we need to bring about a political revolution to get this to finally happen. But when we read this, we understand that Jesus has already started to make it happen. He brings it about in the way that the church embodies his teaching, and finally he will bring it about at his return. This song draws us into all of these realities as we sing them now as our own song and calling in life. In these weeks preceding Christmas that we call Advent, anticipating the first advent of Christ in his birth, we should sing this song and enter into this story, all the while remembering that there's a second advent to come when Christ will return and bring it all to pass. But until that day, like Mary, we are all invited into the story to bear Christ to the world and to magnify the Lord. Does your life magnify the Lord? As anachronistic as it might be, it's helpful for us to ask, do our lives act as a magnifying glass that make God's greatness appear where people can't see it? Do our lives rejoice in God, our Savior? Do we tie the story of our lives into 
his story. We pray that God would do this through us. And even in these next moments, as we sing this song of our souls magnifying Christ, and as we participate in the Lord's Supper, tying into the redemptive work of Christ, we leave with a commission to participate in the redemptive work of God by bearing Christ to the world. May God use his spirit in us to do this together. Father, we are grateful for stories like this one that draw us into the redemptive narrative, that give us a script to live our lives by. Would you allow us to reject all other scripts and all other stories and all other ways of being in this world and instead to adopt the way of Christ and to participate in your redemptive work as we image Christ to the world. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.